1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything Podcast. And today you're about to hear our AMA about food safety in your kitchen.
0: Ask me the number of E. coli cases connected to multiple daycares in Calgary has jumped again. Families are watching in anguish, watching their children suffer from a preventable cause. It's unimaginable pain, and I'm heartbroken by what these family families are going through.
2: There are
1: four things that people should remember. Cooking, cleaning, chilling, and separating. Those four steps are taken, the risk of foodborne illness will be substantially decreased. An E. coli outbreak affecting some daycares in Calgary has now hit over 300 people. More than 20 children have been diagnosed with a severe kidney complication since the outbreak began. And according to Alberta Health Services, it's believed this all started at a central kitchen shared by those daycares. We're still learning more about what happened in Calgary, but we're going to shift our conversation to something we can control, our own kitchens and cooking habits. E. coli, salmonella, norovirus, these are some of the major sources of food poisoning in this country. So what can you do at home? That's the focus of our Ask Me Anything. Our AMA guest was Keith Warner, a professor at the Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. He started a food safety program at the university and has studied bacteria like E. coli and salmonella. Keith answered caller questions about how to prepare food at home safely and avoid getting food poisoning. And here are a few highlights from the show. Professor Warner, thanks for joining us.
2: Good afternoon, Ian.
1: So a lot of people are thinking about uh, food safety, particularly in the last week and a half or so because of that outbreak in Calgary. We are still awaiting the sort of precise details of of where that outbreak uh, may have begun. But, But take us through generally how E. coli gets into the food supply in the first place.
2: Yeah, it's a very complicated system. Essentially, E. coli is adapted to cattle or other ruminants. You know, that's why sometimes we hear about E. coli outbreaks linked to farms and uh, these small farms. So what happens typically is it goes into cattle. The cattle don't feel anything. But what cattle do is produce manure. And so that manure can get onto the hide. So when it goes to be processed, so to speak, it gets onto the hide, gets into the ground meat. We have to cook ground meat for a to get it inactivated. So that's one route. Now, another route is via lettuce and other leafy greens and vegetables. So what happens here, that manure that was actually on the, in the uh, cattle farm uh, leaches into the irrigation water such as in salinas valley and then it gets onto the lettuce and then it goes uh, obviously people try to wash lettuce it doesn't do anything it gets into uh, the consumers that way and the third way and this is more disturbing as we're seeing it is what we call a secondary infection i.e somebody passing it on to another person via the faecal oral route. Uh, route. Uh, let's talk
1: about the second of those three things, because I think the first one, when it comes to beef, for example, people know or ought to know that they need to cook at least the outside of the beef, right? Or if it's uh, ground beef, they need to cook it uh, thoroughly and that will uh, kill the toxin. But let's talk about lettuce. Um, if the lettuce is contaminated, I think a lot of people feel like if you wash it properly, put it in the colander, let that water, you know, pour across it, that that will make it safe. Are you saying that isn't so?
2: Oh, yeah, It's been known for many years. Uh, Washing actually in an industrial scale causes more problems. So we try to prevent cross-contamination. And when people take it home, uh, people say, oh, well, soak it in the sink. That's the best thing. That's one of the most dangerous things you can do because you've got all that contamination around your sink unit. And even rinsing it um, doesn't do that much. And this is why our research, for example, we're developing much more effective technologies. Uh, you know, basically, it's called a hydroxy radical process to overcome these limitations. But just washing it doesn't cut it.
1: Well, so, I mean, there are a lot of good public health, a lot of good health reasons to eat salads um, with, you know, fresh lettuce. Uh, so what do you suggest we as consumers do?
2: Well, it's a hard decision. You're right. On one side, people saying eight vegetables or fruit and vegetables today. On the other side, they're saying, well, no, uh, you've got to be careful. Well, fortunately, you know, the Canadian government is helping us because what they do is demand testing from those high-risk areas, Salinas Valley in Central California. Uh, so that's one thing. But what consumers can do is they can buy intact uh, produce like intact lettuce Rather than bagged lettuce, even though bagged lettuce and bagged uh, produce is convenient, that carries more risk because it's all cut up, it's put into these baths and it could cross-contaminate. But certainly don't be put off uh, by doing it, but anything whole fruit rather than the process cut is always a good thing.
1: Thanksgiving is just around the corner. A lot of people are thinking about the turkey that they may be serving. And uh, conventional thinking in some households is if you have turkey or chicken, there are toxins uh, associated with poultry. And so they believe one of the things they need to do is put that in the sink and wash it before you cook it. You're the expert. What do you say to them on that score?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanksgiving turkeys, this assault course of uh, food safety, uh, definitely defrosted, right? So it's a very classic argument. Uh, do you wash your poultry before cooking mm-hmm. or do you just leave it? And I uh, was surprisingly, I was in a food safety meeting last year full of food safety experts and we did a poll of the audience half washed it and half didn't and obviously the, the safest thing to do is don't wash it you're spreading contamination everywhere you put lettuce down and things like that but when you look at people who believe you wash it you know say so say well our grandparents did it and it's quite interesting the food safety what we call food safety culture how people um, handle food so uh, you might have knowledge, but it, at the end of the day, it comes down from what you experienced when you were young. Uh, so it's interesting, but yeah, don't wash your turkey. I think that's the key point. You don't want salmonella on the countertop or anything like that. But cook it properly. Always cook it properly and defrost it properly. And that's another sort of uh, thing people get wrong. Some people say, let's put it outside uh, on the counter. <laughs> Definitely don't do that. Some people say, put it in the fridge. Uh, again better than the counter but not ideal the most ideal thing is actually in the sink defrosting and diswrapping wrapping with water because water conducts heat much more effectively and you want it defrosted before you put it into the oven and if you can resist the stuffing uh, yeah, putting stuffing in uh, what to cook it in there that's even better cook it at, uh stuffing outside the turkey but uh, certainly and to cool down quickly, you know, don't leave it out there because in actual fact we get quite a few outbreaks at Thanksgiving due to a pathogen called Clostridium perfringens that just loves it when it's between 4 and 63 degrees C. I'm
1: trying to figure out if you're a great guest at a dinner party or the worst guest at a dinner party. But anyway, I'll let our well, listeners decide by
2: the end of the well, that's okay. You I don't invite you too many. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's go to the phone lines right now. John McCormick is here. John, I wonder if you have a question for our guest.
2: How do you stop the um
0: the supermarkets? from being sort of laissez-faire about expired meat. Um, The expiry dates are on there, but the day that the expired, it's in the counter. Guy grabs one, takes it home, thinks that he just bought some sausages and it's still okay. He leaves it in the fridge for a day. It's another day expired. Mm -hmm. And he ends
2: cooking that thinking it's fresh meat. A lot of people don't look at the expiry dates, but they should be removed from the counters, and the counter should be clean. Okay. If you look underneath, you see the blood underneath these counters is dried and di- for their people, don't
1: take the time to do things anymore, and that's okay. the point. All right. Th- thank you, thank you, John. Let me put the, a version of that question to Professor Warner, um, and and not going to ask you about supermarket policy in terms of what we can do to get them to change their their whatever their policies happen to be. But but to the point of your expertise. Um, When we see meat that's beyond its expiry date from the supermarket, uh, is that enough to tell us that there is, you know, sort of a danger there? Or how do we determine whether the meat we're buying from a supermarket is safe to eat?
2: All right, so the first thing is there's no expiry dates on meat. There's best before dates. And so best before dates don't really have anything to do with safety, although they do in a way. They're saying this is the best quality the meat will be. After this date, the quality can't be guaranteed. And we did a program uh, with Marketplace many years ago now where they actually did find – should we say, supermarkets, which took the meat in and relabeled it. It's not the best thing to do, as in it's not the most ethical thing to do, but surprisingly, it's not against the law to do that. A trouble with meat and getting best before dates is trying to predict them right. So some meat will spoil much quicker than others and um, there's reasons for that which we won't go into so what um, supermarkets will do obviously they need to make a profit as <laughs> very good at doing so um, they w- sometimes will change the date even though it's not ethical in actual fact there was a case in spain not in canada just last week where a supermarket manager going to big trouble because he changed was changing dates on everything so it's not uh, ethical but it's there again is to address the food waste problem, uh, which obviously people kind of look at before. But just to reaffirm, there's no expiry date on meat. It's only best before date. And typically, yeah, meat that goes uh, gray isn't dangerous, but there are kind of dangers to it uh, to do with biogenic amines. But like I said, I could go on about that for another half an hour.
1: Well, well but <laughs> let, let me ask this though. I mean, so you get the meat from the supermarket, uh, you open it up. And is there any, any tip you have in terms of how we should determine whether, I don't know, a red flag should go up based on how the
2: meat looks or, or smells? Yeah, so rarely it's the smell. It's a sulfur smell. Like meat in vacuum pack naturally goes gray, and you say, oh, wow, well, you know, it's must be bad. It's lost its redness. But you can smell it, and it smells very putrid, and uh, genetically we're programmed to know this meat isn't good. So usually it's the smell rather
0: than the look.
1: Uh, let's go to Jane Keeler, who's in Ottawa. Hi, Jane.
2: Hi. Uh, I have a curious question. I'm kind of embarrassed to ask it, but I,
0: I just looked it up. And yes, it still says this on the Internet. Okay. It says that wood cutting boards have an antimicrobial property. And that makes them a better choice over plastics hmm. in some cases. I just wondered if you have any comments on that.
1: Yeah, nothing to be embarrassed about with that question. Um, and, uh, and Professor Warner, what do you have to say
2: about wood cutting boards? Well, this takes me back. I wrote an article uh, several years ago on this subject. So what it is, wood hasn't got natural antimicrobials. But what wood does is dry quickly. And you'll notice our plastic wooden boards, they kind of keep wet. And uh, when to get microbes growing, what we have to do is make them wet, so to speak. Obviously put food and temperature into it as well. So there's a big debate saying, well, wood obviously has cracks and crevices, um, but dries quickly. But the plastic. Um, has scratching crevices and keeps wet. So there is actually um, some sort of vote saying, yes, wooden cutting boards are good. But the trouble is, is that they're very hard to sanitize because of all those nooks and crannies, whereas plastic are. So it's one of the other, but it's not a clear cut thing. But I certainly would just go for plastic because of the ability to sanitize.
1: And when you put that plastic cutting board in the dishwasher, um, you know, you're, does that make it sterile and safe?
2: it cleans it up. It doesn't make it sterile per se, but it certainly puts enough temperature in to inactivate microbes where you would never put a wooden um, cutting board in there. Mm. And it, even if we get onto the glass cutting boards, which used to be popular a few years ago, they're definitely not a good thing to have.
1: So, so what should I do to sterilize the plastic cutting board?
2: Well, the thing is, you don't need it sterile. Uh, Basically, you just need it what we call disinfected. So, what I generally do is I get a weak bleach solution, about a cap in uh, a gallon of water. You don't need a concentrated bleach. You could just soak it in there. Certainly, you put it into the dishwasher. Only special dishwashers get up to what I call towards the sterilization temperature. Normal dishwashers don't. But again, it's better than doing nothing. And as you're probably aware, you have different cutting boards for raw meat and uh, ready-to-eat things like lettuce. uh, Because cutting boards are that kind of uh, center where cross-contamination can occur.
1: Do you? Do you have separate cutting boards? I have so much that I need to do to catch up to your advice here with uh, food safety. Let's go to our next caller. Ashley Jollimore is in Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. Hi, Ashley.
0: Hi there. Um, I just have a pretty basic question, I guess, about best before dates. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if they apply after you've opened it so particular i'm thinking of like i have a container of hummus in my fridge and the expiry or best before date i guess is like a month out but it's already been open for like a week and a half or two weeks so is it still good after i've opened it for that like until a month away or like how do i know if i can still use it
1: yeah that is
2: a great question professor warner very good question so basically these best before dates are their kind of estimates for quality they're given by or they're designated by the manufacturer and that's with all the things working so basically they might have what we call hot filled uh, that hummus which basically means once you open it uh, obviously microbes can get in so the best before date only really applies uh, when the, it's in its packaging rather than outside its packaging because we do special things to suppress microbes but certain things uh, you have to watch out for and i always say i don't I never knew why they didn't put these in a list you know if you've got <laughs> certain foods like deli meat seafood soft cheese these are the things where you look at the best before dates and you say, yeah, bash this best before date. I'm not going to have it. Uh, and even pasteurized soups was a popular one. Uh, but most of the time, that best before date is for the benefit of the uh, retailer. You know, Basically, just to say it's got this amount of uh, retail days left on it. And I could tell you about the history. Basically, the, the best before dates were bought in, in 1950 by Marks & Spencers for a marketing tool to get people to buy. But anyway, to, without digressing, to answer your question again, yes, once the best be uh, open, the best before date doesn't mean that much.
1: All right. Thanks for that question, Ashley. Let's go to Michael Longarini, who's in Clarington, Ontario. Hi, Michael.
2: Hi there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. my family, we use a lot of reusable water bottles for water, tea, coffee. Um, And some of them have very intricate lids with valves and locks and different tight O-ring seals that are really hard to take off. How careful do we have to be with trying to thoroughly clean all the hard-to-get places of these lids? And does it matter what you're using it for? Like, should we clean them more uh, if we're using it for coffee or juice uh, compared to water? What do you think?
1: Great question. Thank you, Michael. Professor
2: Warner? Yeah, it's a very good question, because when we look at our drinking water bottles, even the uh, recyclable ones and disposable, we think, oh, they're safe. But the trouble is, you'll get like a slime layer called a biofilm in there, which normally is safe. But there again, it can, it can be pathogenic, You know, basically all these pa- <laughs> nasty germs. So essentially, we have to kind of uh, look at them and sanitize them, rinse them out. Uh, again, those that you can put in the dishwasher, very good because you do get a bit of temperature there to do it but you've got to be very wary especially uh, for young old and immunocompromised when we do have these i call them reusable containers that they are sanitary because like say once you get biofilms in there they're very hard to uh, remove and uh, sanitize and to your question about well we've got these recyclable bottles yeah they're fine for a part but you would never use them too often because you can't dismantle them and obviously sanitize them. Hmm. Uh,
1: Right, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, We have uh, just a couple of minutes left in our Ask Me Anything and uh, our next caller is here in Vancouver. Marshall, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, What's your question for Professor Warner?
0: Well, I was wondering, um, with cleaning, like I buy a head of romaine lettuce and what
1: I do is I do rinse it in the sink and apparently, from what I've heard today, it's that I'm doing the wrong thing. So I'm wondering if I could Uh, fill the sink with some water, put the
0: lettuce in it, break it up, put it in there, and then put uh, some bleach in it. And I know bleach is toxic to us, but I would then, wouldn't that kill the bacteria? And then I could empty the sink and then rewash the lettuce in in clean water. Could I do that?
2: Uh, well, you could do that, but it's dangerous. You know, it's quite interesting. During, um, I'll say the pandemic, I've got to say which one, uh, you know, people are putting detergent, bleach in. And the problem is, as you rightly said, bleach is toxic at very high levels. In industry, they basically use bleach to stop cross-contamination. You shouldn't use detergent, you, should use, you shouldn't use borax. The best way to clean the lettuce, because obviously you don't want the insects and the debris, is under running water. Anytime you have standing water, You've got to think of your sink as this sort of sponge in one corner full of germs, uh, maybe a cloth or a brush full of germs. So you try to avoid contact with the sink and uh, certainly avoid using chemicals. You can buy some formula, but they don't really do that much. I won't say which ones, but uh, people sometimes use vinegar. doesn't really do anything. But running water is the best thing to do.
1: Professor Warner, thank you very much.
2: No, thank you, Ian.
1: That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA about food safety in your kitchen with Keith Warriner, a professor at the Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can stream the podcast on the CBC Listen app. And if you want to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Mansing. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC News Explorer next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.